We do have hearts that desire to follow through with everything that we sing, what we just sing, saying is that, Lord, you would be lifted high, and, O oh Christ, that you would be exalted, not only with our words, but the proof of those words that we sing by our lives, by our affections, the things we desire, the things we seek to conform to, not merely externally, but internally, in the entirety of our lives, as we offer ourselves to you as an expression of worship, you who are worthy of our worship, you who are worthy of our obedience, you who are the end of all that we aim our lives towards. And so we pray now that as we hear these testimonies and as we take a few moments to consider the meaning and the purpose and the content of the proclamation that is in the symbol, the ordinance that you gave and commanded to us in baptism, that our hearts might be refreshed to think of your marvelous grace, the glory and the wonder of your mercy to us who know you, that any who are here who have not yet tasted of your kindness in Christ and are yet strangers to grace and strangers and outside of the kingdom of heaven, uh, that you would today use the truth of your word, the glory of Christ crucified and risen to bring them into that saving relationship, that saving knowledge of Christ. It is to that end that we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are again, of course, uh, just taking a few moments to think about uh, baptism and particularly uh, what baptism means. Baptism was commanded by the Lord for all of those who believe in him. It was the very command of Peter in the first New Covenant sermon in Acts chapter 2. They said, what must we do? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. Bear witness to that faith, essentially, that you are now embracing to that Christ crucified and risen that you have been convicted under the preaching of and want to receive the benefits of his life and his work. It is by faith that we are saved. It is by baptism that we declare in an act of obedience that salvation to the world. And so baptism is then a declaration. It's a declaration. So when we, we hear these testimonies and we see the symbol of being uh, placed underwater and rising up for it. It's, it's not merely a ritual. It is a declaration of truth. It is a declaration of what those who are being baptized believe, what they have placed their faith in. And there are essentially two things. If we, these are two broad categories of this proclamation. First part of that category is it is a declaration of the truth of the gospel that they are affirming. And secondly, it is a declaration of their response to that truth in repentance and faith. We're going to consider the first of those uh, this morning as more of a meditation than anything else. But I want to introduce it in this way. Why to take time to do that? Why to take time to consider the content of what's being declared in baptism? I don't know about you. I'm, actually, I do know for some of you, not everyone, that you have been to baptismal services that maybe left you confused to what baptism even is. Uh, confused even at times as to what the people being baptized even think that they're doing in being baptized. I've heard testimonies and been to baptismal services, not here, uh, in other places, 
where I'm listening to them speak and I'm thinking to myself as they're sharing, are they saved? Do they even understand the gospel? Or I'm trying to understand if I were to be an unbeliever and just being introduced to the message of Jesus Christ, what would I leave that place thinking about Christ and what it means to know God and what it means to be saved? Some specific instances that I'm thinking of, and really even one in a, not to be too harsh, but a so-called testimony of God's saving grace, was little more than an accounting of some kind of spiritual experience that had Jesus in there somewhere. Usually it's an account of things being hard, or the ones that I'm referring to, and how I had an experience with God that brought to me peace, and it brought to me comforts in life. I had some kind of spiritual experience of feeling close to God, of being assured of his acceptance, of being assured of his love for me that will carry me through life and help me in difficult circumstances. And it was little more than that. Now, these things are glorious true for the believer. In fact, one of the climactic statements in all of the New Testament is found in the end of Romans chapter 8, in which Paul says this, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is the truth of the love of God for us in Christ. It is the truth of his sustaining mercy that has carried countless believers through suffering and through trials, which is even the context of Romans 8. It has warmed them. It has given them a solid foundation on which to stand. And so the love of God is one of the most precious truths to the believer. However, to get to that statement and to the love of God, of course, Paul has already spent seven chapters defining that love, describing that love, explaining that love. It is a love, in other words, that has content. It has truth that's being embraced. It's not merely a spiritual experience. It's not merely warm feelings about God. It's not merely having some divine being that only has good towards me in life. It is that, but it is so much more than that. The very explanation of this divine love began in Romans 8 with an explanation of God's wrath against sin, his anger with men for their false worship of other things and other deities, but not of the true God. It is a message of the confrontation of religious hypocrisy that was endemic to the nation of Israel at the time. It was, as we read this morning, a message about a case for the total corruptness and guilt of man and why God is just in his condemnation. He's not unjust, but he is fair and equitable in his dealings when he brings condemnation. It was a message, as we read again this morning, of the sovereign provision of righteousness in Christ, that he is the one who was on the cross who, by God's own divine purposes, promised in the law and the prophets, satisfied his requirement for righteousness, positively by obeying in our place, fulfilling all that the law demands, negatively by bearing in his own person the guilt of our disobedience and transgressions and our sin who have trusted in him, and then rising from the dead, authenticating his work. It is a message about the enduring nature of faith, even through testing and trial, about the profound connection of us to Christ, who is the second Adam, tying us all the way back into the creation story and God's promise to send another who would undo what the first Adam did. It is a message about the believer's death to the reign of sin in their life because of union, the spiritual union with Christ and identification and connection with his death and his resurrection. 
It's about a message of the freedom from the condemnation of the law, about the possession of the great blessing and promise of the new covenant, which is the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit in believers. It is a message about his enabling us to pursue righteousness, to pray, and to suffer as children of God in a fallen creation. It's a message about the glorious promise, so much so that Paul could say this promise carried him through suffering and he didn't even consider the sufferings of this world worthy to be compared to the world that was promised to those as in, by inheritance to those who believe in Christ who participate in his inheritance who participate in his blessings it is in that context that the love of god is what sustains his children through suffering It is the love of God that shapes and conforms them to Christ who suffered on their behalf. It is the love of God who affirms in them every promise that enables them to carry through with faithfulness in this life. So when I make that comment about it being little more than a spiritual experience about the love of God, the love of God is true, but the question is, how do you understand that love of God? What is it that you're actually believing? God's love has a context. Sometimes, and some of you have been to baptisms that don't give any testimony at all, but are little more than a general statement of faith, usually someone affirming what the pastor has just said, and leaving in the mind the question, is that truly what you have embraced? And of course, only the life ultimately bears testimony to that. So what is the point of all of this? What is the point of me saying this? It is to say this, that when we come to the waters of baptism, We're not seeing a proclamation of someone's warm spiritual experience to carry them through life. We're not merely watching or observing a religious ritual that someone has to go through because that's part of what it means to be in the Christian church. We're not observing some kind of activity that will somehow bring that person into salvation or bring them into some hyper-spiritual experience. We're not merely watching... Uh, someone become part of a religious movement or some broader religion that they want to be connected with. We're witnessing an act of obedience to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We are witnessing an act of obedience and submitting to a symbol that he himself ordained that proclaims eternal truth on which the souls of everybody rest. Everybody in this room and every image bearer ever since Adam to the last person who will ever live. That is what we are witnessing. It is a proclamation of truths that each Christian holds dear. Each of these being baptized are declaring that they embrace these truths, that they have invested their entire lives. They have rested their eternal soul on these, these truths declared to us in Scripture. They're saying that this truth of the gospel is now how they are not only being identified with in Christ, but it's how they view the world. It is the truths that they would live for. It is the truths that they would die for, not only by some act of persecution, but it is the very truths by which they will seek to die daily to themselves in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, these are the truths that at the very core of their being and of every Christian who is a Christian in truth. So what's being declared is a body of truth, a body of truth believed, revealed in Scripture, and embraced by all those who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I want to consider, and you could say a lot of things, but I'm going to just very briefly and do a little more than mention some of these. Uh, What is it that's being declared? 
when somebody is being baptized, what are they saying that they believe? What is a Christian declaring that they have laid hold of and embraced as far as the person of Jesus Christ? And so the first part, then, of what's being proclaimed is the body of truth, the body of faith that reveals Christ in Scripture. And let me give you at least seven things, at least seven things. When someone is baptized, when we witness these baptisms, and for those of us who have been baptized, we're acknowledging the truth of God. It's an acknowledgement, essentially, that there is a creator, that this creator is the one who is revealed in Scripture and ultimately revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's saying that it's an acknowledgement that he is the one who is God, he alone is God, he is holy, and that we bear his image. And because we bear his image, that we owe to him everything. This is not a nameless or a vague deity. It is not merely a deity of spiritual experience that can be individualized for each person. It is a proclamation of the God of Scripture. And it is in proclaiming the truth of the God revealed in Scripture, it is a proclaiming that he is the one who has all rights on me. He has all rights to my person and to my life. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 22, the sum of the law, which is then to say the sum of the purpose of man on earth and the sum requirement of righteousness is this. You're familiar with these words, that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If you'll remember, the law begins with God creating all things and God revealing to man his requirement of them. That is what the law was. However, we don't get very far in Scripture where that requirement is given to us in the context of our fallenness. And so then it is also then an acknowledgment of his promise, of his promise. But it is first then an acknowledgment of the truth of God, the God revealed in Scripture. It is secondly an acknowledgment then of our sin and our guilt and our helpless condition. In the waters of baptism, it is essentially saying that I identify myself as fully embracing and acknowledging God's testimony about me, which again we just read this morning, that I have no good thing in me. So when someone is being baptized and embracing the gospel, they're saying, I'm embracing a promise. I'm embracing a person. I'm embracing a salvation that I could not accomplish on my own because of my guilt, because of the thoroughness of the helplessness of my condition. Even the Apostle Paul, as I would hold as a regenerate believer in Romans chapter 7, the end, says, there is no good thing in me that is in my flesh. There was in terms of the new creature and the new creation, but in himself, of himself, apart from an act of divine mercy, there was nothing in him that he could say was good. And so those who are being baptized are acknowledging and saying, I am sinful, I bear on my person the guilt of my sin, and I am helpless to do anything about it. It is thirdly, then, an acknowledgment of Christ as the God-man, the provision of God for sin. That is the very one that we're identifying with in baptism. 
It is to reveal that he is not merely a good man. He is not merely a wise rabbi and a wise teacher. He is not the highest of God's created beings. He is, in fact, the Son of God, mysteriously united to human flesh, to live in that experience on earth without sin, to offer himself up as a guilt offering on our behalf so that he might remove from us the sting and the just consequences of the law, that he might defeat death in our place, that he might rise from the grave and send the Holy Spirit in whom we share in his life. That's what's being declared, that he is the God-man, the one alone who could have in some mystery of the incarnation the fullness of deity in human form for our behalf. And it's a necessary acknowledgement. Thomas, as you remember, Doubting Thomas said when he, after the resurrection, and he wasn't totally convinced when he heard the witness of it, wanted to put his hand, feel with his hands, the holes in Jesus' side and in his body. But then when he was confronted with the risen Lord, who said to him, to Thomas, reach here then with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. It was an affirmation of the divine nature of Christ, who was also man. There is no exception to that. Let me just mention one other passage in 1 John chapter 4. The apostle tells us this, and he is here identifying those who are of the spirit of God and those who are of the spirit of Antichrist, which is already in the world, he said. But he says this, by this you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And then he says later in verse 6, we are from God and he who knows God listens to us, that is as divinely appointed apostolic witnesses to the person of Christ and salvation. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us, and by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It is to say, then, that to affirm faith in Christ is to affirm everything that God has revealed about his person. It is to reveal Faith in his divine nature and in his human nature as a sacrifice for our sins. It's mystery, but it is true. And he says here that that is necessary. That is a necessary affirmation to affirm the genuineness of a person's faith in Christ and therefore then his salvation. So it is an acknowledgement that the Son has come In the flesh for our salvation. It is fourthly. Firstly, it's an acknowledgement of the truth of God. It's an acknowledgement, secondly, of our sin and guilt and helpless condition. It's an acknowledgement of Christ as the God man, the provided Savior. It is fourth, an acknowledgement of Christ's death as the only atonement for sin and a trust in Him as the only way of God. Those who are being baptized are acknowledging and saying, I am identifying with Christ's death, not because I find it to be the most meaningful religious proclamation of all the other religions, not because it's my truth that I've decided works for me and blesses my own life. It is to say that I'm identifying with the one through whom no one can come to God apart from, or apart from no one can come to God. Jesus says, I am the way, and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
The apostle said in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given from heaven among men by which we may be saved. Why? Is that because, you know, just he wants to pick a name or because Jesus is more special than anyone? Well, yes, because he is the son of God. But it is to say as well this, there is no other atonement for sin. You've heard this, I'm sure many of you, but if we we were to categorize all of the religions of the world, there's really only two, and you have all of them in one category and only one in the other. There is the category of human achievement. There is some kind of explanation of our being made right or reconciled, however that's conceived, or brought to a better place in the afterlife by what we accomplish, by what we do, whether that be some kind of sacrifice, whether that be some religious work, whatever it is. But when we come to Scripture, when we come to the true testimony of God, we are confronted with this one reality, that we have nothing we can do. But that puts it too lightly, actually. The real truth is, is that we've had plenty we've done, and it's all been condemnable and an expression of our guilt. That if one is to have any hope at all, it is to be what God is going to accomplish on our behalf. It's what God is going to do. Sometimes it's referred to outside of us. In our place, he's going to do something for us that we can only receive from him by faith. That is grace. That is, again, what Paul mentioned there in Romans 3, a righteousness apart from the law, apart from any human achievement. It is a righteousness that he would provide, and that is in the death and the resurrection of Christ. So 1 Peter chapter 2 says this. We've, of course, covered that. But he says... And he himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. So baptism declares that. It says that I am identifying with the only one who is an atonement for my sin. The only one in whom I can have forgiveness. The only one in whom I can be brought to God. The only one in whom I can have life. The only one in whom I can have any hope at all because he is the one who stood in my place. He is the one who was at the cross for me. He is the one who rose for me. He is the one who came to this earth for me, for the eternal glory of God and for our eternal blessing in him. And so this is a declaration of that. It is a declaration as well of Christ's resurrection from the dead. It's a declaration of Christ's resurrection from the dead. When we see in this symbol, we're declaring not only that Christ's death was the payment for our sin and that he is the only way to God... It is an acknowledgment as well that Christ rose from the grave, that it was, he rose from the grave for us on our behalf, all who will trust in him. That was, as a matter of fact, at the very heart of the very first sermon of the new covenant. That this man who you delivered over by the predetermined hands of God, or the predetermined plan of God, whom you nailed to the cross at the hands of godless men and put to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And guess what? That resurrection David looked forward to, the prophets looked forward to, that resurrection you have all witnessed and bear witness to. And I'm, Peter could say, and bearing witness to that as well. He said, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, to which we are all witnesses. And that being raised from the dead, he was also, after appearing for 40 days, he doesn't say that here, but after he appeared for 40 days on earth, was exalted to the right hand of God. 
from where he will where he will remain until he returns to establish his kingdom on earth it is then to acknowledge that Christ is resurrected and that we serve not a dead Christ but a living Christ we serve not a dead savior but a living savior we serve one who is going to return and who is this very moment as alive as he was when he walked here on the earth and is as alive as he was when he walked with the disciples and others after the resurrection and who is alive as he will be when he returns in power and the glory of the Father and all of the holy angels. That he is the one who is resurrected. He is resurrected Lord. And that's what's being declared in the waters of salvation. That he was raised, as Paul would say, in another place for our justification. For our justification. In other words, he was put to death as an atonement for our sin. And in his being raised from the dead by the glory of the Father and to the glory of the Father through the glory of Christ, that his death was authenticated as being and affirmed as being accepted. And that his promises are affirmed as all true and real. And that we can, in Christ, who trust in him, be counted as righteous. Not because of ours, but because of his. And his alone. It's also an acknowledgement of this. It's an acknowledgement of Christ's return to judge the living and the dead and to bring the fullness of salvation for his people. It is an acknowledgement, this symbol, not only that Christ has died... Not only that he rose, but it's a symbol as well that indicates or that points us to the reality that he is also the one who will return. Peter, in preaching to the house of Cornelius, said to them, He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. A statement repeated in other places. It is a resurrection that Paul would say to those philosophers, uh, Greece that furnishes proof to all men that he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So when we see these waters of baptism, we're affirming his death, his resurrection, and his return. And lastly, we're affirming this in the symbol of baptism. What is being affirmed is the acknowledgement that Scripture is the final, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. Because it is in Scripture that he has revealed Christ. It is in the testimony of God in his written word that every believer here stands. It is affirming the truthfulness of Scripture. You maybe don't often think of it that way, but that's precisely what is being indicated here as well. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Can you finish the rest of the verse? According to Scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. How? According to Scripture. It is the divine testimony that God anticipated in the Old Testament and that he revealed and affirmed and proclaimed in the New Testament the finished work of Christ. It's all here in this book. And there's no other way you can learn of Christ and know of Christ and the promises of God and the fulfillment of his promises in the future and how to walk wisely in this world and how to live for him and all of the details that he's revealed to us of his glory and his majesty and his grace, except we know it here. We were brought forth by the word of truth. And so in the waters of baptism, there is a declaration that says this is the word of truth. 
That this is the guide for my life. This is how I know God. It is my connection with the Father. It is how I know anything about God, particularly, specifically. It's about how I know anything about his redemption, his redemptive glory, and his promises and plan for the future, and how to discern and think about this world in the meantime. So those being baptized are saying as well that we follow Christ's lordship as he has revealed that and instructed us in his holy word, in the Bible. So don't think of this merely as a religious ritual. Don't think of this as entering into some warm and fuzzy spiritual experience, though there are the delights of true spiritual joy, every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. Don't think of it merely as some kind of symbol that allows someone to be in the Christian club. It is a proclamation of a body of truth about Christ being embraced and believed and held precious and defining the very way that we view reality and understand it and the things that we live for. And so it's a glorious, glorious symbol. Let me, with that, pray, and then we will uh, be led in another song. And uh, as we prepare to get into the waters of baptism and hear these testimonies, um, which you will be very blessed by, as I have been, and excited to hear them give glory to God in Christ. Let me pray for us just very briefly first. Father, thank you for this wonderful and tremendous truths that you have not only revealed to us, but you have indeed accomplished in reality, in history, and in truth, and that you will in the future as we await the return of Christ, we who know him. Help us who know you to be freshly reminded of the glories and the wonders of grace, to be freshly encouraged and renewed in our commitment to you and our worship of you. Would you, as we prayed earlier, take these truths and capture our affections for the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God as we anticipate him in whom our life is hidden, his return and our life in him revealed in its fullness. And would you please, by grace, take these glorious truths and cause any here who are yet outside of them to enter into your salvation by embracing the finished work of Jesus Christ and committing to him. It is these things we pray in our joy and to your everlasting glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.